Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. If you would do me a favor, let me start off this morning with a little bit of a disclaimer. And by that, I mean my intent today is not to open wounds or renew feuds or remind you of your shortfalls, because I know I have many as well. We all have them. However, we cannot gloss over the parts of the Bible that we don't like or find uncomfortable in favor of the ones that we do. The purpose of God's Word and Jesus' teaching here is not to put you and I on a guilt trip or to send you into a downward spiral. It is to reveal God's plan. It is to reveal God's standards. And it's so we can live the best possible life that God has created us to live. It's just like if you were to buy a new set of furniture that's in the box that you have to assemble, or if you are going to have to be assembling toys in the near future, you know what I'm talking about. And you're going to have to find the directions to see how all that works. And this is God's direction for how we should live our life. Because when you follow the directions, it goes much smoother than when you wing it or just go by how you feel. So if the Holy Spirit prompts you in any direction Understand, it's to be bringing you towards him, not away from him. Because this world is broken. Its definition of love does not match God's definition. You see, the world encourages us to look out for number one and to be self-serving, while God's word moves us to serve God and to serve others. You see... You and I must remember a very important fact, and I don't think you'll hear it preached in many places today, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the code. I'm going to give you the the bottom line of the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus did and the gospel and how it affects us. Do you realize, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, God's desire for you is not to be happy. What? That's the truth. God's desire is not for you to be happy because happy is circumstantial. Don't get me wrong. I have never been happier than when the Lord came into my life and I've lived according to his his commands. But bottom line is there are some rivers that he will take you through. There are some trials that he'll put you through. He'll put you in the press of life sometimes because he has a plan for you. But God's ultimate desire for you is not to be happy. It's to be holy. God does not desire for you to be happy. He desires for you to be holy. Now, happiness is a part of that. It's a part of holiness. Matter of fact, let me show you this verse. 1 Peter 1.16 says this. It says, For the Scriptures say, You must not, or excuse me, You must be holy because I am holy. Why does God want us to be holy? It's because He is now, the next question is, for those of you that are not raised in church or, or know the church lingo, to be holy means to be set apart. It means to be used by God. I'll give you a great example. We have a very sweet communion committee that anytime we do the Lord's Supper in church, 
they go to the closet and they pull out the special dishes, the special juice carriers, and all the things that they have to do to put it together so that we can commemorate this holy act of the Lord's Supper. And those are not used for anything else. The youth are not going to take them and use them as frisbees. We're not going to use them in our finger food fellowship. They are things meant to be used in the sanctuary for his purpose. And my friend, let me tell you something. You are holy and you have been set apart. And God has a plan for your life. And he wants you to be holy just like he wants me to be holy. And remember, if you are a believer, you do have Jesus living inside of your heart. Your body is no longer your own. You were bought with a price. Matter of fact, Jesus gave his life to make sure that you could be his and that you could be holy. Because in our own strength, we cannot be holy. It is only possible through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So with all of that said, when Jesus taught this sermon, the focus of most of the Jews at that time, when this was written, they kept the letter of the law. If the law said it, That settles it, and they would do it without even thinking. They didn't really understand the intent behind the laws. That's like if you've ever been part of a company or organization or even a church, you know that the why is the reason you have laws or bylaws added to your organization? Because somewhere along the way, somebody messed up, and now you've got to cover for that. We have laws. That's why we have these things. And so we see here, why are these things so important? The Ten Commandments beautifully laid out what we should and should not do. And the Jewish religious leaders were doing that. But yet they didn't get the intent behind it. So today we ask, why are they important? And how can they fix this broken world? And more importantly, how can I fix my broken world? So we're going to look at three things that a Christian must have to fix this broken world. The first thing we see in verses 27 through 30 is a real Christian should seek real love. A real Christian should seek a real love. No one, and I'm going to go ahead and say this, no one in this place is exempt to adultery. And some of you might say, well, I've never done that, preacher. I'm, I'm okay, and I, I'm glad you haven't. But still, have you thought it? Has it gone through your mind? Has it been a possibility? You see, some of you here listening today about this Sermon on the Mount, about these topics, you've either done it, you've been done wrong, or you've been the wrongdoer. Some are thinking about it, and some think that they can take a nap right now and zone out for a minute because they've never, ever committed adultery. But after reading Jesus' teaching, you will see that everyone is affected by this teaching. I'll go ahead and tell you, this is a great crowd, and we could go way deeper and way more real with this. But for the purpose of the congregation, I fully believe through the Holy Spirit you're going to understand what I'm saying. So after reading Jesus' teaching, you will see that everyone is affected by this. So if you listen to this message and you think, I've never committed adultery, so I'm better than the person sitting around me, you have lost the purpose of this message already, and you might as well pack up and go home. Because although you have not committed a sin, 
There are plenty of people that have. And even though you haven't committed it, you may have thought it. Or you may, there is something in here that is going to hit everybody. So let's get started. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. says, You have heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yes, men, when you're at the beach, it's not the first look, it's the second one. And the third one. Or ladies too. It goes both ways. In verse 29, so if your eye, even your good eye, some translations say right eye, even if your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, or some translations right hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. So what we see here, the first thing is, real love is not real lust. Real love is not real lust. Avoiding adultery is not enough. We must keep our hearts from being unfaithful. You see, just like last week when Jesus said, if you're angry towards somebody, that has the same seeds that would cause you to murder somebody. So if you are lusting after somebody, then it has the same seeds of you having a moral failure. Lust leads to unfaithfulness. That is a pattern that has not changed since the dawn of time, and it will never change until we go to heaven Lust resides in the physical realm. I've often, when I was teaching youth, I would tell them this, and it's so true, that guys are like microwaves, girls are like wood stoves. That, that's deep thought, isn't it? Microwave, 30 seconds, woo, I'm there. You know, we, we process with our eyes. We, we have that, we notice things. We think about things, and that is far as I will go with that. But yet, a lot of times, the females... They have to go out and get the wood and find some kindling and find something. I mean, it it takes a lot more effort. And guys, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the effort is worth it. But the thing is, but the thing is, is that when we take these desires that have been God-given, that God has wired to us, and we try to fulfill them in ungodly ways, that's where we have a problem because lust resides in the physical realm. If all you're thinking about is I gotta, it's kinda of like Bojangles. Gotta have it, gotta want it, gotta need it, Bojangles, right? If that is where you're at, the heart and mind want what the eyes see. It's kinda of like me when Don and I go into Best Buy and we look at the real big TVs, I'm like, ooh. Now there's a little bit of lusting in it, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you that. So I have to ask for forgiveness of that. At least it's the television, right? But you know what? We go home and, but, but that's as far as it goes. But the thing is, is that the heart and the mind want what the eyes see. Lust triggers our bodies to act. Love triggers our hearts to serve. Let me say that one more time. Lust triggers our bodies to act and love triggers our hearts to serve. Lust says, what about my needs? Love says, how can I meet their needs. Lust takes and destroys, but love builds. 
You see, love is a deep feeling of attraction and commitment that causes you to want to make a person's life better. I can guarantee you, when you found your spouse, it wasn't, he's all right. He ain't much to look at, but it's kind of like a puppy. I feel sorry for him. Or the guy saying, she's all right. I mean, she's not her friend, but at least, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead. No, that's not how that works out. At the first moment, guys think the girl is cute. The girls think the guy is cute, hopefully, if he's acting right and everything. I mean, the first moment you meet that person, there is a physical attraction. It's got to be one. It's kind of like the, the man that had a choice. And the man said, look, i got two daughters. You can marry one of them. One is drop dead beautiful, but she can't cook a lick. And the other daughter, she's not much to look at, but boy, can she sing. So the guy thought about it, and he said, you know, looks fade, and, and she's not, you know, the, the other sister can, can sing, and I mean, I really enjoy music, so I'll go with the second sister. So he says, okay, sir, I've made up my mind. I'm going to go with the second sister, the one that doesn't look so pretty, but can sing. So they go through the wedding, and they go through everything, and so it is the morning after their honeymoon. And now your love is in the air. And he looks at his bride with no makeup, hair's not fixed, the morning look. He rolls over and goes, <gasps> and all of a sudden he starts shaking her and says, Honey, please sing for me. Sing for me. But the truth of the matter is, is that there has got to be a physical attraction. But Satan takes that one step further and starts to turn it against us, just like when we talked about anger last week. Let me ask you something. Do you want a better husband or wife? Let me ask you this. If you do, how have you served them? Have you loved them? Have you helped them fulfill all that God has planned for them to be? I have learned over the years that my goal of a husband is not just to be the breadwinner and the protector and all that all other macho stuff. My job is to pastor my wife and make her all that God has created her to be. Not to be under my foot, but for me to lift her up and to be in that position that God wants her to be. To serve her. To serve God by serving her. That is not lust. That is love. And I'm not perfect. I'm not saying, hey, look at our marriage. We are, you know, we've never had an argument. I can't lie in this pulpit. I'd be struck by lightning. Marriage is hard. Marriage is a commitment. And love takes work. Let me ask you something. How have you helped your spouse fulfill all that God has planned for them? Do you pray for your spouse on a daily basis? Kids, how do you make your families better? Do you always ask for money and permission to be taken to places without giving anything back to them? Do you pray for your family on a daily basis instead of getting mad when they say no? You cannot imagine your life without that person when you were in love. And true love is blessed by God. I I hear people ask all the time, well, preacher, how did you know it was love? And I would just tell them, look, it's not like a, a movie like The Notebook or something like that. It's not that cute. Sometimes you just realize, I cannot imagine my life without that person. But it's different for different people. So lust is not love, and real love does not wander. In verse 28, 
we see that. We see that real love does not want it. I'm going to give you three examples. Number one, in our love for Jesus. You see, John 14:15 says, If you love me, obey my commandments. My friend, if you are busy trying to keep Jesus' commandments and God's commandments, you're not going to have time to look in other places. All right? The second thing, love for our spouse. Hebrews 13.4 says, Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and who commit adultery. Would Jesus consider someone thinking about having relations with someone outside of their marriage a sin? All of us, we're all good church people today. We would say, absolutely. Then desiring for God to grant your sinful ways is the same thing. Would Jesus consider someone having a mental or online affair with someone outside of their marriage a sin? If the answer is yes, then the sin would be desiring to grant God given desires, and sinful ways. Would Jesus consider fulfilling someone's physical desires in an ungodly way? Then again, sin would be desiring you to fulfill God's given needs and desires in ungodly ways. So we also see not only do we have love for Jesus and love for our spouse, but love for our family. Adultery doesn't just wreck those two people that are involved. It has a ripple effect on the entire family. People are tempted to take sides rather than come together. Children think it's their fault when actually they were only in the aftermath. And decisions in the moment of lust and temptation will affect you for the rest of your life. Also, we need to have a love for our testimony. Satan wants you to wreck Your testimony. You have been given the name of Christian and God wants you to protect that. But the more believers Satan can get the fall, the better he likes it. And why does Satan work so hard against you and I? It's because he knows that he can't take God on one one, one on one. So he takes care and he attacks those things that are most precious to God. And that is you. And that is me. Well, the next thing we see in verse 29 is that real love makes corrections. Real love makes corrections. Actually, 29 and 30. Does this sound like Jesus can overlook our thoughts and acts of lust? Does it look like Jesus is just going to give us a pass on this when he tells us in verse 30, even if your stronger hand causes you to sin, cut it off? It's better to lose a part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus gives an extreme response to show the seriousness of the act. Jesus ain't playing around, folks. It is better to lose a limb than to lose your soul. That's pretty pretty straightforward. I kind of imagine if, if Jesus were Barney Fife, he'd be writing right here, Jesus wants you to nip it. Nip it in the bud. We have a few Andy Griffith family show fans. But that's right. He wants us to nip it in the bud. 1 Corinthians six eighteen says that we must run from sexual sin. Run from, not run to. Okay? Run from sexual sin. No other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. 
In other words, you are not only hurting someone else, you are hurting yourself. And you think adultery and lustful actions and lustful thoughts stay in your head that they won't hurt anybody? You think, hey, preacher, just move on. I got this covered. I can handle it. Let me remind you what James 1.14 says. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. Hebrews 12.1 says, strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. So when we look at adultery, here's some things that we can we can take. Number one, clean up your thought life. That's the first thing you can do. Clean up your thought life. Number two, clean up what you let into your eyes, your mind, and your heart. Yes, pornography is a big deal for men and women and children. Kids cannot even do their homework these days without seeing things. Especially if their parents are the ones hiding it and trying to get around it. Your kid will find something in a heartbeat. Don't be the one that hooks your kid on that stuff. It's not just for men. It's for women too. Women are having struggles with it as well. Clean up what you let into your eyes, your mind, and your heart. And the third thing is redirect your wrong affection toward God-honoring places. You see, this excitement that you feel when you meet somebody and you are drawn to them physically, that is a God-given trait. So it is important to channel it in the right places. I've told people before, especially couples when I'm talking to them, and I may have told you all this before, but I'll put three chairs on the floor and I'll ask one to sit in one chair and the other one to sit on the right and there'll be a chair in the middle of them. And I'll tell them, look, you see this chair that's in the middle of your relationship? There is always somebody seeking to be there. There is always something seeking to take the place between you two. And y'all have to fight like mad to make sure that that doesn't happen. Men, there will always be a woman that is just available to hear you when you need to talk. Women, there will always be a man that will be available when you feel like your spouse is not available. And if it's not a person, it may be a thing. It might be a hobby. It might be a habit. It might be addiction. But there is something that is between you and your spouse, and that is not God-given, and it is driving you apart. And you all have to fight together to remove that from your relationship and focus back on one another. But that is only happening when you focus on God first. My friend, if you want to fix your marriage, fix yourself. If you want to fix your family, fix yourself. You cannot fix somebody else. You can only fix yourself. You fix yourself and you pray for that person, you serve that person, and watch God do a work in their life. Real love makes corrections. I don't know about you, but if I'm going the wrong way, I want to turn around so I get to my destination. It doesn't matter what happens. Wherever that path leads, that's where I will end up. And I know many of you say, I hear you, preacher. I know so-and-so that happened too. And you think you're not going to go through that? My friend, never. Say never. The second thing he teaches on is that a real Christian should seek real commitment. Putting the teaching of divorce in the context in which it was written, the climate of the culture in that day was getting a divorce was what you did at the first sign of trouble. Getting a divorce was simply getting a paper saying that you were divorced and nobody was at fault. They would use it to protect their money. They would protect it to save face in front of family and friends. 
And the religious Jews would claim that they are following the law of adultery, but in their hearts it was only self-serving. And we still have that problem today. The Jews, Jesus was teaching, had wrongly concluded that men could divorce their wives for anything that displeased them as long as they gave a certificate of divorce. So they could come in and they say, Honey, you don't have my slippers ready. Let's go get a divorce. I don't like this meal. You didn't do it well enough. Let's go get a divorce. It could be something as simple as that, and they could be right with the law in their minds. But Moses provided this concession to protect women who were divorced, not to justify or legalize the divorce under any circumstances. But now in today's culture, that may be true for some, but for others, even the mere mention of this topic brings a flood of emotions. And it is more important than ever that we look to Jesus' words today in verses 31 and 32. Verse 31 says, You have heard the law say, A man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. What do we see in this passage? We see that real commitment doesn't look for a way out. Real commitment doesn't look for a way out. It's not enough to avoid adultery. We must keep our hearts from lusting and being faithful to cause it. Jesus is showing us here that adultery is not just a legal action. It's serious. Divorce is not meant to be an escape clause in a marriage. If you're getting married with somebody and you automatically have divorce on the table, don't get married. Divorce is not an option. There is nobody in this world that can drive me crazier than Donna Strickland. I tell her that. And there is nobody in this world that can drive her as crazy as me. You see, it's just her and I, so we pick on each other relentlessly. And I I can give it, but I have a hard time taking it. But you know what? Over the years, that has gotten sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. We've had our ups, and we've had our downs. And if we had been like anybody else, there may have been times where we might have thrown away the towel, but we said, no, that's not even an option. And I know exactly, there's some of you in here saying, well, preacher, that's good for you, but my story's a little different. Okay. It doesn't change what Jesus says. Divorce is not meant to be an escape clause in case it doesn't work. The two top reasons most people divorce for instead of just infidelity is someone says they're not meeting my needs or I don't love them anymore. I just, we fell out of love. How many times do you have to see it where a family, they focus on the children when the children get old enough to understand the parents are looking at strangers, they don't know one another, and then they get a divorce because they never took time to focus on that relationship. The emphasis of marriage and commitment is not I, but them and him. And changing your marriage begins with you, not a lawyer. Real commitment also doesn't cheat. This could be seen as a continuation of the previous verse where Jesus said it's possible for someone to commit adultery in their heart. Folks, pornography, social media connections and reconnections. Hooking up with your former classmates on Facebook Messenger or work relationships. They all start as harmless flirts until it becomes real. 
Real commitment doesn't cheat. Real commitment commits. That seems deep, doesn't it? Real commitment commits. When a couple gets married, they should never see divorce as an escape clause. And folks, let me go ahead and tell you, you will never know the full blessing of a full commitment to someone unless you place the divorce clause off the table. Jesus illustrates that the out of divorce is unfaithfulness. I mean, now, I mean, people can get divorced because of unfaithfulness. And biblically, you have got that covered. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it doesn't mean that if you're in that situation and someone is an unfaithful to you and they're unfaithful to you and you find out about it, that doesn't mean you automatically jump to the lawyer and say, let's get divorced. Where's the forgiveness in that? Where's the redemption in that? Where's the growth in that? I said, but preacher, you don't understand it. It hurt. It made me mad. Okay. Too much to forgive? Here's the thing. When it comes to divorce and you've got one or the other, there's never one person always fully right and one person fully wrong. And all Jesus is saying is, is look, at least try. Make an effort. Just because it says you can get divorced doesn't mean you have to. I know plenty of couples that had infidelity in their marriage. They stuck it through, and they have the best marriages. They would tell you they have the best marriages they've ever had because they weathered a storm, and they came out stronger. I'm not here to judge you or the story or your situation. The truth of the matter is that all of us have to deal with our own stuff, and God knows the truth. Some have been done wrong, and others have done the wrongdoing, but God loves them both. But if it doesn't work or one of the participants is not willing to work on it, you've got to do what you've got to do. If you are in an abusive relationship, that person may not have cheated on you, but they have been unfaithful because they're treating you like they should not treat you. They are breaking the law. No one should ever stay in an abusive relationship. No one should ever stay where they are being taken advantage of. But just because infidelity occurs, it doesn't have to be the end. You could be on the dawn of a new beginning. Also, adultery, let me be clear on this. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. The only unforgivable sin is to deny Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Jesus warns against unfaithfulness as a means for divorce, but it does allow for repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. Surely we can agree that God demonstrates love for those who are unfaithful. If you don't believe me, read the entire Old Testament where the people of God, the Israelites, they would be faithful to him and then they would stab him in the back and be, and they would start loving other gods and other things and stop their worship of him. They started taking their affections and putting them on a golden calf. They cheated on God with a golden calf. God knows what it's like. To be done wrong. I think of David. He's one of those guys that should have not taken the second look when it came to Bathsheba. But yet still, God restored him. I think of Peter who denied Jesus three times. 
Jesus, before he left this earth, the last thing he did was restore Peter. And my prayer for you is that if you are in this situation or ever get in this situation, that you pray for forgiveness, repentance, and restorations because God has given a great example of that. Biblical heroes have been given a great example of that. And that is what Jesus died for. Let me encourage you to hang in there if you ever get in that situation. Seek God. Seek biblical counseling. Seek one another. Practice forgiveness. Rebuild trust. And experience the joy of a strong relationship that has weathered a storm and is stronger. There's some of you out here today, you feel like that no one understands what you're going through in your relationships. But my friend, there is always somebody in a church that understands because they are people too. Yes, you have your story. You have your circumstances. But God knows where you're at. And God knows what you're going through. The last thing we see is that a real Christian should talk real talk. A real Christian should talk real talk. A vow in Jesus' day meant a witness was making a truthful statement in the presence and honor of God. In other words, I vow and I swear that by God's name we will, you know, and, and they make it all big and puffy and sound all great. So to break an oath was seen as breaking a promise to God. You and I are responsible for the words we say, the promises we make, and the commitments we make. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, You have also heard our ancestors were told, You must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows to make to the Lord. But I say, Do not make vows. Do not say, By heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, By the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, By Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of a great king. Do not even say, By my head, for you can turn one's hair white or black. And here it is, boiling it down. Jesus says in verse 37, just say a simple yes I will or no I won't. Folks, you and I are responsible for the words that come out of our mouth. A real Christian must be a person who speaks truth and whose words are trustworthy. Many can make promises they cannot keep. They say it just to sound good, just like those Jesus was addressing. But remember, Jesus is condemning those who speak empty words. How much trust do you put in someone who promises but never delivers? You ever had that person, oh, I promise I will. Oh, I'll do that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'll put it, I'll write it down and I will do it. And they constantly do not. How much stock and faith do you put in that? And also, having a potty mouth <laughs> is not something to be proud of. A real Christian speaking truth is actually pretty rare today. People are desperate to hear people come through with their promises. And you and I should not have to say, I promise, we should just do it. And I'll be closing up real quickly here with a couple of things. Number one, be like my friend Horton. You remember Horton? Horton the elephant. Do you remember what he said? He said, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. Horton gives us a, a good adage to walk away with. Is that when we say something, make sure that we are faithful 100% to it. 
Lastly, Jesus teaches us to be real in a fake and broken world. Folks, we need to love with real love. We need to commit with real commitment. And when we talk with real talk, we must guard our testimony. Folks, there is nothing, hear me, nothing. There is nothing we have read in God's word that cannot be forgiven today. The blood of Jesus has covered every bit of that. And there is always hope for those who are tempted. And there is healing for those who are hurting. And there is guidance for those who speak. If you have been through divorce, it doesn't make you any less of a person. You've got your situations and you've got what you went through. And, and you know, and you, you have done this with God. But I just want you to know, if you've been through that, you're not damaged goods. That everything has been covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Real love, real commitment, and real talk is only possible through Jesus. Look at it this way. If this will fix us, then we can fix this broken world. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for guiding us through these muddy waters, Lord, that have been made muddy, Lord, by human interpretation. But Lord, I thank you that you spoke to us, that you preached this, that you taught this, and you taught us how to live real lives in front of you and in front of those we love. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that that wants to know you as their Savior and Lord, and they, they have been reminded, Lord, that they have got sins that have been unconfessed and unforgiven, and they want to know for sure that they have a saving relationship with you, that all of this we have talked about is covered by your blood. If they want to know you as your Savior and Lord, may they come forward today. Maybe they have a prayer request. Maybe something that was said in this message uh, touched them, and they want to come forward for prayer. They can talk with me. They can come to the altar. They can pray right where they're at. Maybe someone wants to get baptized to join the church. Whatever it may be, Lord, you work. But I know that you are working in the hearts of people today. And may there not be shame and regret, but there be excitement and willingness to embrace you in whatever they have gone through. Because, Lord, the devil's plan is for them to be separated and divided. But your plan is to bring us together. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?